Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. I'd like to say a massive thank you to everyone who came to this live event. Like, it was incredible. The energy in the room was great. Like, this audio doesn't do it justice. So this was the launch event for the new book, Superior, by Angela Saini. Now, considering the subject of the book is race science, it would be great if you go on Amazon and review it because there are lots of people on there leaving bad reviews just for the sake of leaving bad reviews, which isn't great. I mean, do actually read the book before you write a review. Like, that's just common sense. So just leave an honest review. It doesn't have to be five stars. It would be great if it were five stars though i mean come on right and no we've not been paid by the publisher to do this because if we were i wouldn't be recording this into a microphone that's covered by a sock That was pretty good, right? <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Um, I could do this every day. Right? <laughs> if all of you could stay here for a while. Yeah. Just... I mean, this, if this was going to be the event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Can, Can we just, just like, do that again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. going to be clapping and clapping and clapping. <laughs> Amazing. So the next 90 minutes will go a lot smoother if you don't enable him. Like, pretty, pretty, please. Um, how have all of you been? How has everyone been? I'm going to ask Hannah first. Because Angela, you've just released the book. I'm not going to ask you how your day's been. Um, I mean, now that you've mentioned that Angela's just released a book, I don't really feel like I can talk about how my week's going. So, hey, Oz, how's life been? I mean, I just recently became an uncle, so I've just been playing with a baby the whole time. Oh, my baby's been... Yeah. Oh. Great. <laughs> Is it a cute baby? So cute. Yeah? yeah. Right, I'm scared of all the babies stand. are cute, first of all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this baby is particularly... Yeah. So how? Is there any cute babies? I, I've, I've been... I, it's been pretty frantic. I, I, I read the book today, so... <laughs> 
was good. I finished reading it today uh, in classic last-minute style, um, and it was it was bloody good. And, uh, and that's why I was late here. So I literally ran here. <laughs> so silly! Oh my god! He sprinted in. He's wearing a hoodie, so he sprinted in, like from covered in sweat, back covered in sweat. He just stared at the events team and like, water, water. <laughs> Give me hydrate. <laughs> oh, anyways, but no, it's super yeah. good to be How's here. How's your week been? Oh me? Yeah, yeah. You, you. Know. Oh mate, I got a haircut. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Hey. Yeah, it looks good, right? Thank you. All right. <laughs> No, no, because this is the first time I've gone for, like, a proper skin phase. I went to my barber, and, um, like, this was meant to be, like, a half-hour thing. It took 75 minutes, because my barber got into a fight halfway through. <laughs> my, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you can see, like, I've got a picture of me just stuck there looking like a mushroom. It's like, oh, okay, where are we going with this? So, uh, that's been good. I've, I've looked like this now, so I've been going around, like, asking family, friends, and, you know, my partner, does this look good? And they've all said yes. My mother, in fact, said, hmm... You know, you don't look serious. <laughs> so, um, do you normally look serious? <laughs> I normally look good. Okay. I mean, I look good now. That's a I look good now. <laughs> um, so yeah, Angela, I'm not going to ask how your your week's been. It, I mean, I'm nervous because we've already been chatting for two hours backstage, and I feel that the conversation has already degenerated into anarchy. And it's just like, <laughs> No. That's what we're Alex, all about. Alex, so. just tell the audience what you brought with you tonight. <laughs> Did all of the ethnic minority people in the room get the email I sent? Did all of you bring your second passports? <laughs> Anyone? Anyone? Some of us don't have second passports. Right. Yes. And I'm just not told about this. Wait, wait, do you have second passports? I don't. I'm too English for like anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Oh, well, this is going to be high risk for you. Enjoy. Thanks, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> going to say some spicy stuff. No, but today we're here talking about Angela's new book, Superior. Everyone's got the book, right? Yeah. <laughs> and if not, you'll have it by the end of tonight. Yeah, we go. Um, but we're going to be talking about, you know, race, science, society, all of that good stuff. I mean, good stuff in the book. Um, but sort of the question that really gets asked is, does, like, does racism exist in Britain? <laughs> <laughs> I think, yes. Yeah. Um, but the question is, does it sort of exist in science? And, you know, Angela's written this pretty good book. It's good, you know, um, discussing it. And, you know, for me, as someone who studies sort of biochemistry, you see it in various places in science. You know, recently, you see James Watson, so part of the team that got the Nobel Prize, for discovering the structure of DNA. Didn't do the work, Rosalind Franklin, actually. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, he's come out with some fairly racist things. So these things do exist within science. Um, to give people some context who haven't listened to it or heard him say these things, uh, here is a clip from a podcast episode that we did on him. It's Cold Spring Harbor in the US that has stripped him of a bunch of honorary titles that he had at the university. Why? 
He's been making stupid comments about the differences in IQ between black and white people, including saying that he's inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. Given my desire never to stay away from messy problems, I was bound to myself sometimes. That's what I did. Have your views on the relationship between race and intelligence changed? No, not at all. I, I would like for them to change, that there be new knowledge which uh, says that uh, your nurture is much more important than nature. But I haven't seen any knowledge, and. Uh, there's a difference on the average between blacks and whites on IQ tests. I would say the, the difference is uh, uh, it's genetic. I'm a product of the Roosevelt era. And if you ask me uh, what people thought about race in the Roosevelt era, they thought there were differences. Thomas Jefferson thought there were differences. It should be no surprise that someone who wanted to find the double helix believed the genes were important. To the extent uh, that uh, uh, I, I've hurt people, uh, of course I regret it, and uh, you know, I like black people, so why would I want to hurt them? I don't know anyone who uh, takes any pleasure out of difference between black and white. We wish it didn't exist. Why? It's awful, just like it's awful for schizophrenics. But if the difference exists, then we you have to ask ourselves, how can we uh, try and make it better? I just don't. I don't understand it. It is very painful because I do love this man. I mean, you have to love the teacher who gave you your life you know, in science. I do love that person, you know, and you have to. And I admire what he did for, you know, creating a world of, of science and creating the careers of all these people who everyone was privileged to have known such a person. I don't know. So, Angela, your book, Sort of on this subject, I guess. Um, what do you think when you hear something like that? Well, I've heard a lot of it now because I've been reading all the papers and trawling it for three years. And I think one of the things you have to confront when you're looking, when you're studying these people, when you're looking at the body of work that they put out and the comments that they put out, is um, we want to be able to categorise people as good and bad. We want to be able to look at history and say, these are the good people and these are the bad people these are the racists, these are the anti-racists. And actually, it's not like that. It's more complicated than that. And we have to remember James Watson, while I'm not defending him in any way, and I think actually the Academy and uh, Coltering Harbour were so slow in taking away his honours and fellowships, um, much too late. We have to remember, like he said, he is more than 90 years old. When he was born... Um, the idea that there was a racial hierarchy was mainstream. Loads of scientists believed it. 
uh, there were eugenics labs in London, all over the place. Um, there were loads of scientists doing research into human differences and then telling us that certain people were better than others. And this was the pretext for 200 years upon which slavery was uh, allowed, justified, that genocide and colonialism and all these things, it was the edifice upon which everything was built. So how can we expect James Watson, who was born into that and educated into that, to feel any different? And especially, I think there's a certain arrogance that comes with really smart people, especially scientists who think that because they're really good at their science, whatever they think about the rest of the world must also be true. You know, and that they shed their prejudice, I find, much slower than the rest of us because they feel that they have some kind of privileged morality, some privileged access to knowledge that we don't have. So whatever their prejudices are aren't prejudices at all. They're just facts. And I think he is one of those people. So I think he's a racist, but I also think he's a product of a system, and we are all products of that system. We all carry that subtle bias in a way. We all have these little prejudices. And having to confront that and examine ourselves, I think, is the way to move forward and start to understand how we can deal with this. Because condemning individuals is not enough. Not just in science, but in economics. You see these people who have great ideas, Nobel Prize winners, and you know another great racist of the 20th century, William Shockley, who's a physicist at Stanford, and he thought that black women in America should be sterilized because they were, you know, through this kind of negative eugenics program because their babies would just be naturally inferior to white babies. And um, although he was recognized as a racist because he was so obvious about it, um, people did listen to him because he was William Shockley. You know, he was this famous Nobel Prize winning mind. So how can he not be right about everything? But of course, it's perfectly possible to be good at one thing and not know anything about other things. Right, yeah. I and think it's a logical fallacy, isn't it? It's an argument from authority. And it works in another way because people try to discredit other people's views by mm-hmm. saying, oh, because of their character, isn't it? Um, one of the things I really found interesting was you kind of touched upon it, it's like the systems that are moving in place and how this race science, how like ubiquitous it was in the past and how that formed like a large part of history and shaped a lot of political thinking in the past. Um, and like, you know, in the book you talk a lot about uh, World War Two and Nazism and how they use kind of race science as a structure to build their racist kind of political views on. Uh, for that, that really struck me as quite powerful I think what we have to remember is Mm. that this wasn't just something the Nazis did. And I think this is one of the mistakes that scientists have made since the Second World War, is that everyone in the West, because we were on the winning side, was able to say that was nothing to do with us. Actually, um, it was all interconnected. Eugenics was developed, invented here in London. It was exported around the world. It became very popular in America. I mean, there were sterilization programs in America that continued into the 70s, in Japan, in so many countries around the world. And um, this was something that British eugenicists did. The fact that it went into Germany and there was this kind of um, exchange of ideas and ideologies that then this particular regime ran with, well, that's just circumstance really yeah. it could have happened a different way it's, it's funny actually because i was reading the book and then there was a there was a street name that came up and i was like i recognize that 
street name, and it was 50 Gower Street, wasn't it? And I was like, that's where we record the podcast. What? Shh. Do you want to get access to that street? Uh, to track that statement, um, I know that street because I, I buy biscuits. Uh, I've never been there. <laughs> <laughs> the point I'm trying to make is that it's way closer to home than you think, yeah, and I mean, it, it's is. difficult to be introspective about these things, isn't yeah. it, sometimes? And, and because scientists mm. kind of, uh, in the West, were able to wash their hands of everything, they felt that after the Second World War, whatever they did was fine because they weren't Nazi uh, scientists when in fact the same frameworks and the same language, everything really um, to some extent stayed intact. So even though there were, there were efforts um, after the Second World War and the UNESCO kind of spearheaded this, brought scientists and policymakers together and said, race is a social construct, it's a fallacy, let's move on. Well, actually not all scientists were on board with that, including scientists at Oxford and Cambridge were not on board with that. They weren't even on board with a statement within that statement, that said we are all one human species. Just think about that. Mm. After the Second World War, British scientists weren't even on the same page about the fact that we were the same species. And that continued for a long time. And I feel that's still the bedrock upon which research is still being done. Mm. I think it's interesting as well that some of the researchers who actually describe themselves as anti-racist were still using sort of slightly problematic language. Yeah. Um, so as someone who's mixed race... Um, what? <laughs> yeah. right. um, like, as, this guy, you know, he, he was talking about mixed race children and literally used like the phrase the beauty and vitality of hybrids. And he's yeah. like, like, that's not language and anti-racist uses. Also, where is my pro- like promise by, like hybrid vitality? <laughs> <laughs> Put it on Tinder. <laughs> Everyone mixed here, put that on Tinder. <laughs> um, and it just, it's like the framework is so ingrained in that even when people are trying to dismantle the structure, they're sort of still working within it. And I think that's, that's why I think it's important to remember it's not just about good and bad guys. It's about systems and institutions. So the quote... Uh, that you just read out mm. was from an interview I did with um, Luigi Luca Cavalli Swartzer, who is one of the, who was one of the leading population geneticists. He kind of founded the field, and um, sadly he died last year. I interviewed him just very shortly before that, and he used the word hybrid, and I was really shocked. But then again, I have to remember, here is a man, an avowed anti-racist. He debated William Shockley when he was at Stanford. He was kind of the poster child for anti-racism in science. Uh, and yet he was able to use language like this. And the reason for that is the same reason that James Watson is able to use the language that he did. Because in his generation, this was acceptable. This is how we thought about these things. This is how we thought about human difference. And we have to accept that the leap beyond that has not been made. It's also when you take... Okay, so there's like scientists who are doing like anti-racist... Work. I like that you put scientists in air quotes. <laughs> like everything in that sentence was, was anything real there as a concept. <laughs> scientists, I'm just referring to me. No, but like day to day interactions you can have with people as, fa- as well who believe that they're not racist will still st- say stuff to you, right? Yeah. You still. Like, but we still think it as well. 
we also internalize mm. it. Right. And that's the thing we have to remember. Mm. I think context is important because you like when you write about um Professor Dude, I forget his name. Luigi. Professor scientist, all right. Uh, but he, you know, like I, I, I've had those experiences. Yeah. Just the other day, I'm a brown dude with a beard, right? People, someone at work asked me, oh, "Are you fasting?" And then, <laughs> I was like, "I was like, no, I'm slowing." And they were like, "That's a shit joke." How many you guys laughing? But, but afterwards, he said, he said to me, "It was that bad that I assumed." But I know this guy. I was like, "This guy isn't." A bad guy. He just has certain preconceptions, uh, and I think when we talk about you know creating change in the, in the structure, we need to get people on side, don't we? And who yeah. might have good intentions or might not use the right language at times. Sure, but there's like someone yeah. asking if you're fasting versus someone calling you exotic. Yeah, it's slightly offensive. Yeah, but you know, I think it's about balance. Being aware of the context is important. Isn't it? A lot of the science is, it is like subconscious, deep-rooted racism. It's like trying yeah. to... Yeah, although I'm on. kind of wary about calling people out all the time. Yeah. If, if they're genuinely thinking that you're fasting and they're genuinely trying to be... Friendly, nice. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So it's <laughs> just fine. Be it's being aware of the context because then you have actual racists and then you have people who are just a bit misguided or, or not aware. I think there is things. the thing about like microaggressions though. Like I'm not saying call people out all the time, but you get one paper cut and it's fine. You know, you get mm. like there was a Ramadan where I think I got asked why I was celebrating Eid, why I wasn't fasting, but yet I didn't drink about like I'm not even joking, like it was in double figures weekly. Mm. Mm. And there is a sense then that you just feel really othered. It's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I can understand that. I can understand that. Drew, what's Ramadan? <laughs> I'm, I'm messing with you, I'm messing with you. Um, but like, we were sort of talking around it, but in like general terms, you know, mm. right now, 2019, Angela, in this book, sort of the context of this book, what would you consider race science? Like, what is race science? Um, science. <laughs> <laughs> All the science. <laughs> I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. There are scientific racists, so these are people on the margins who kind of trawl journals and trawl data to look for stuff that will um, reinforce their or justify their prejudices. So they will look for bell curves, the kind of stuff that you see published in the bell curve, uh, Charles Murray and Richard Hansting's book. Um, you know, anything that makes it look as though they are not actually racist, but actually just this is how the world is. Um, and I do think that those people are marginal, but in the current uh, political age, I think they're becoming more and more powerful and more influential. They are slowly uh, spreading their tentacles into mainstream proper journals published by uh, publishers like Elsevier. So we have to be worried about that. And also they're reaching out to the politics, um, you know, the wider politics, and we have to be worried about that. But I think, like I said before, the bedrock of the science that we're doing is still based on these old frameworks. This, you know, two, three hundred years of science, which was um, arranged around the premise that there is a high, human hierarchy, that white European men are at the top, and women and everybody else are kind of slotted underneath. And we, and however much we think we're beyond that, and it's very easy when you're a researcher working in a lab to think that you are beyond that. We are not beyond it. It's, 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 it's in the sense that it's so deeply ingrained in the institutions that we work in. I think one of the examples was you, right at the end, wasn't it, of the book, where you 
there was an experiment. They asked these researchers to define race, and none of them could. They, they were like, you know, cause, but it's it's a thing that you put on a form, right? It's something so what we can see is so innocuous, but then there's a deeper context of how it shapes research, isn't it? Which I found quite interesting. We feel it's so yeah. real. We know what race we are. We know what box to tick, or at least most of us do, and it's becoming more complicated. But, you know, we feel that we know who we are. Um, but actually, when you're asked to scientifically define it, you know, put some biological parameters to it, it's really, really difficult because it was always quite arbitrary. And even now, when scientists talk about population groups as a kind of euphemism for race sometimes, um, it's still statistical. So it's, mm. it doesn't apply to everybody. So you could be not typical of that particular group. And I'll give you an example here. So the word Caucasian, which now we use as a kind of scientific-sounding, polite word to describe white people, when that was invented um, by Johann Blumenbach, so he looked at the skulls of uh, different races, and he thought that the skulls of the people from the Caucasus were the most beautiful. And he defined um, Caucasian as everyone from Western Europe to North India, which would make us Caucasian. Mm, thanks. <laughs> wow. Yes. And just think about what I mean. So not only are we also white and brown, but politically, the National Union of Journalists, of which I'm a member, defines me as black. So I am white, brown, and black all at the same time. That's how... You need all those diversity quotas, don't you? <laughs> Like on the arbitrary, like so, I spent half my childhood in Singapore, and I was very much the white girl at school. And people, you know, you tell that people here, and they're like, "What?" Um, but yeah, yeah. it's different depending on the yeah, country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In you America, know, I had it. It's yeah. defined differently in yeah. South Africa. It is in Australia. Um, you know, every place has its own definitions of mm. race, and we forget that it feels so real to us in the place that we're in. You go somewhere else, and suddenly you'll find you're something completely different, mm. and that speaks to the arbitrariness mm. of race. Yeah, because that's something I found sort of quite interesting reading this book. Like, you, I very much all the way through it felt how nebulous and how like, I guess, transient and fluid race is. Because like, I think of it back to my childhood. Like, my parents are from Ghana, so when I'm in Ghana, I'm you know a mix of Fancy and Ga, or I'm considered white. When I'm here, I'm Ghanaian, you know, or with people I'm mixed, or you know, at home just me. You know, at university and outside in the world, I'm black or person of colour or BAME. Mm. Um, like, all these things, like, mm. that I didn't ask for. You just get sort of that, that... It's not like taking a box. It's like getting a box thrown on you. Yeah. Um, and you have no idea of how to get out of the box. True. Um, I just make my own little box and write gangster. <laughs> um, do you think, like, Alex, do you think that... Um, I've got, I've got a serious question now. You can't follow that up. Do you think question. being a person, and you've mentioned this in the book, being a person has mixed culture, mm. uh, you're able to think more abstractly about race and things like that and kind of see it? Because you, you say you're, you, know, you don't feel quite English and you don't feel quite Indian. Does that, does that make it more loose in your head and you can think about these things abstractly? Mm. Yeah. Um, well, there is also that general sense of I'm too white for the black kids and too black for the whites, <laughs> um, which is very yeah, Alex, so. yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think you learn. I think something like that when you don't have intrinsically like 
a, a single box to tick. You get very good at navigating those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, like I learned very early on the the best way, just uh, for like the forty percent of you here, the best way of like navigating white middle class spaces is opening with three words: "How are we?" <laughs> all right. <laughs> then, then you aren't threatening at all. <laughs> all right. You can come in looking like Killmonger and. <laughs> You throw in a how are we, you're good. Alright? <laughs> so basically what you're saying is you've avoid, you've found a way to avoid the question where are you from? Um, <laughs> kind of, yeah. It's, you find ways of letting people know that you are, you belong, I guess. Mm. And that's, that's a whole sense of things that I got through here. It's that, that sense of wanting to belong or how do you define belonging yeah, to any group mm. I remember reading the book I remember thinking that very, very, having very same feelings is what you were saying about not feeling quite so English or quite so Indian because you know I was born somewhere I was raised somewhere else I now live here and the way it's <laughs> a really concise history <laughs> it feels no, it feels like you're dodging the home office <laughs> Like, like, I am for airport security. You're like, oh, I well, I've gone somewhere. I was raised somewhere. Now I'm here. Let me in. I, <laughs> it's very, very good. I recently got a British passport. So I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of trying to keep the home office off my trail. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but you... you living in all these places the way race is defined changes so dramatically that you end up not knowing what the hell, what the hell you are um, <laughs> don't take it personally okay, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> don't call someone yeah. <laughs> yes. so for example in Sri Lanka the way race is defined is by sort of more religious um, terms rather than, you know, the colour of your skin or, like, where you came from. And then, you know, when I briefly lived in America, when I said, oh, I'm Asian, they're like, no, you're not. You know, it's like... Because yeah. what they consider Asian is completely different. Yeah, I got a lot of Hispanic racist abuse when I lived in Boston. Oh. Okay, everyone thought I was Hispanic, so mm. that was... Not it nice. just shows you how... <laughs> how fragile that whole concept of racism mm. isn't it? and like yeah mm. the fact that no one can clearly define or yeah. give it a clear definition mm. yeah and i think but i think that's difficult for us to accept because it undermines your sense of identity to know that it's so arbitrary to know that it's so kind of um open to interpretation then what are you? And then you have these identity crises. I did have an identity crisis when I was writing the book, so I thought, then if it's not definable, then what does that make me? And that answer I came to was, I'm British. I was born here, this is my culture. And actually, if Britishness is ever going to mean anything more than being white, then I have to own that. I have mm. to be fully British. And if, um, you know, Nigel Farage... I want it to be that Nigel Farage can stand in front of a poster of brown people... And nobody questions that because all those brown people could easily be British. Yeah. Excellent. So what I really like there, Hannah, is that mm-hmm. she's having a race identity crisis only now. <laughs> um, you know, I'm pretty I sure. Mine's been quite recent. What? <laughs> well, no, I mean, I guess I've had many race okay, identity crises. Um, like but, a solid underlying <laughs> level of it. But actually, Oz started my most recent crisis um, by asking me why it seemed like I defined more as Indian than English when I'm half, half and half. Um, 
And I think, coming back to, it sort of ties up in all this stuff of saying about how arbitrary it is. I think that's a lot to do with how people perceive me. You know, I'm told I don't look half white. You know, I think I do sort of, I can pass for Indian quite easily and quite a few other nationalities and races. Um, but so I think often your identity can be shaped by how people perceive you and which box they put you in more than what you know you are. Hmm. Um, but just, then it also goes back to like this deep sense of, and again, something you touch in the book is people wanting to feel like they came from somewhere and they belong to that. And then on top of that, they then build this idea that, and therefore we must be better than... I think it's an existential thing. It's like people... I, was say, I love existential depression. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he loves it. We all love it. Very it's my favourite pastime. Uh, but it's an existential thing. When you start thinking about your own mortality, you start to think more about where you came from and who you are. And it's something, you know, I'm Gujarati, so I, when the older I get, I, I, the more... Oh, I think I'm Gujarati from my... We've done the DNA test, by the way. It's controversial. <laughs> it's controversial. But, um, but you, you start to think more about where you came from, and, uh, and you start to think about that's when you start to unlock that. The thing is, why does it matter where you came from? It doesn't. I don't know. Like, you know it's it just a human thing. It matters because however you define where, what that place is has meaning attached to it. Mm. So the reason we care about these labels is because they have meaning attached to them. Same with gender. Why do, are we so desperate to know what someone's gender is when it's indeterminate. Mm. It's because then we know how to relate to them, how to treat them, how to talk to them. And the reason that we talk and relate to them differently is because of all these stereotypes we attach to that label. Mm. And it's the same with race. When we know someone's race, when you are asked, where are you from or who are you, the reason it matters is because then we know how to relate to that person. And a whole set of stereotypes then get slotted into our heads about that person. We feel that we know them more because we're judging them against all those stereotypes. And that's so dangerous because that's not how difference works. Almost all the difference between us, and 95% of the genetic difference between us, obviously, is individual. That's a source of most of the difference. And all our personalities are different. Mm. And then it's all culture on top of that. You can make, you can have cultural stereotypes, and maybe for some people they will be accurate, but you're not judging that person as an individual, and that's why I think these labels are so damaging. And we need, as individuals, to be able to move away from that. Mm. This is why I hate ancestry testing, mm. because what value does it give you to know who your long distant ancestors were? You know, like Danny Dyer mm. thinks he's related to Richard III. Well, why does that matter? Why does he think? What does that give him? It gives him nothing. It gives True. him absolutely nothing. It gives him a television show. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it him no more podcast than the rest of us. Um, but because there is meaning attached to this idea that you belong to this group, um, and that's, that is what race is. That's mm. all that race is. Do you think it's like a sense of tribalism? It's like human beings yeah, being, I'm from this group, you're from that group, and it becomes just this, that almost like, you know, footy teams kind of hooliganism, but in a more... <laughs> I, love, I love that you summarise the entire world geopolitics into, like, <laughs> Liverpool about versus Dyer, whatever. Right? I'm just keep the theme going. Uh, but no, but it is it's something more primal, primitive, isn't it? You might argue, or would, would, is that an unfair criticism? No, because I really struggle with this. There are some mm. researchers who believe that racism or xenophobia is kind of hardwired into us, this fear of the foreign. But then if we look into really ancient history as we know now, um, modern humans 
um, bred with Neanderthals and Denisovans, so how discriminant could they have been yeah. to mate with other species? They were getting on. Sweet love. Uh, speaking of that, actually, because... Yeah, but like, you know, we are, I guess, are we, Hannah, would you say we're biased? Ooh, here's a question. Um, <laughs> so I've noticed that in some of the coverage of your book that people have sort of questioned your objectiveness. Yeah. Sorry, I'm right. just looking to you because I'm like, how the hell is this a question? Are um, you able to be objective? What do you mean being brown? Can I be objective <laughs> Look, in that race? Uh, <laughs> Angela, what you've got to understand is that I don't see colour. <laughs> <laughs> Well, just to point it out for you there. <laughs> it's, um, this is kind of, uh, it's only one person who said this, I should say, so I'm not damning everybody, but um, there was one reviewer who suggested that perhaps um, the reason I wrote the book the way I did was because of my experience of racism or, you know, my ethnicity. And I have to, we have to each ask ourselves, are white people free of these experiences then? Do they not have any biases and they are, they are able to come to this topic free of any kind of prejudice or bias whereas <laughs> I, I having experienced it cannot um, I, I find it so offensive because as a, you know, I'm a science journalist I have an engineering degree I have two degrees I work so hard um, to be as objective and fair and balanced as possible to the point where I will patiently listen and interview people and give time to people who deny my equal humanity. I've interviewed countless people who do that. And for someone to then turn around and say that I'm not objective, I think it's just unfair. Do you get any similar responses to inferior when you write that? Um, yeah, well, of course, when you're a woman mm. and you write about women, then it's the same thing. <laughs> with this and with my last book, well, I, I always had the trolls in my head all the time. And that's why I work so hard to be as thorough as I can and reference everything. Because I don't want anybody able to be able to turn around and say she wasn't, that you know she let her bias creep in here, or to say that I wasn't completely fair to everybody. And I think perhaps I go you know, further than others would because of that. Um, it undermines my integrity and professionalism as a journalist. It says that I'm not the same as any other journalist. It says you are different and you have a certain perspective and we need to... This is what I see in the media all the time. Whenever, um, not all the time, but often, when I'm put up on a programme or they want me to debate a racist, essentially, because I take a position. And what I'm saying is I'm not taking a position. These are the facts. This is work I've done as a journalist, as an objective journalist, and I'm presenting it to you. I don't need to debate them with anybody because those debates are encompassed in the work that I've done don't feel the need to have to debate racists in order to... I think there's to, an issue of, uh, like, and, you know, working as a journalist as well, there's an issue of moral equivalence, which yeah, we do a lot in yeah. journalism. And it's funny, because I was trying to pitch Angela for radio shows, and they were like, we need a racist. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, OK. He texts me at two in the morning to Alex, you're any racist. <laughs> <laughs> and then needs must. the next day, needs that's the <laughs> on a similar note, I wrote an article about this a few years ago about the idea of objectivity in reporting and news. And mm. I think while you can take every pain to be objective, I think sometimes I think we live our life through like a, the, the sensibility, like a prism of our own sensibilities, our own experiences. So to be 
100% objective, I'd say, is very difficult. But yeah. I think it's, you're right, it's important to retain your integrity, mm-hmm. stick to the facts, because otherwise people will dismantle your arguments, won't they? Or discredit um, you. Yeah, I'm not saying that I don't have politics. Mm. My politics is anti-racist politics, mm. obviously. But knowing what my politics is, that's how I go about my work. Absolutely. And there's a lot yeah. of people who don't know that they're... Politics is actually politics, and then go about their work and then write about it. Which is far more dangerous. Yeah, yeah. which is dangerous, which yeah. is why we end up in the situation we're in. Absolutely. That whole debate of racist thing, I find it quite quite aggravating, especially mm-hmm. on Twitter and stuff. People are like, oh, well, you should hear them out, blah, blah, blah. You know, be, don't be aggressive about it, blah, blah. Um, so I always said, like, if someone has a gun to your head, would you ask to debate them? Like, not, yeah, no, you wouldn't debate them. But if someone is building a gun and you see them building a gun, why would you not stop them? Why would you be like, oh, I don't know where this is going? Yeah. <laughs> and, like, for me, it's because what I realised with a lot of these people is that they realise the gun is not going to be pointed at them. Yeah. yeah. So they're in a position to be like, oh, well, just debate them. It'll be mm. great. Why are you debating them? <laughs> um, yeah. I can be a lot less, more, more subjective because <laughs> um, But, yeah, I mean, it's just... It's just very difficult. And I find it so frustrating because there's this entire industry of people who have emerged in order to fulfill that racist role in the media, right? And they get so much work because there's few of them and everybody needs them. Yeah. Good business. There's money there. Anybody needs it. There's a lot of money to be made in racism. I mean, we have. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I've sort of spoken about generally race scientists and sort of <laughs> scientists through history who've done bad things. And, you know, we've had so many, um, I guess, movements around the world to, I guess, take away or to... To take away, say, statues like roads must fall and, you know, all these things. And um, I think even in the UK, we're having some talks about whether or not we should not celebrate these scientists um, who said racist things. And even though they've done massive contributions to science. So, I mean, say Angela, but all of you, do you think that it's possible to separate the science from the scientists, like in the context of like arts and stuff? Like R. Kelly, can you separate the the music from <laughs> that was the look? All right, the yeah, right. documentary. We're, we're, we're already here. All right, the R.I. can't kick us out. Allegedly. <laughs> but suddenly like, the lights go out. <laughs> no, but like you know, separating the art from the artist. Can you separate the science from the scientist? And should you like? Is is it right to go? <laughs> I mean, you can't, you can't separate the you can't separate the science from the scientists. But at the same time, you can. I think you can look to it and be like, okay, some there were things that were wrong in the past, and we can do things now to correct. <laughs> That's the home office. The home office. So, for instance, with the whole roads must fall um, thing, the, the reason I, I could be wrong here, but from what I understand, the reason Oxford University didn't want to pull that statue down was because he had left a lot of money and they were going to financially lose out by doing that, regardless of what the consequences were. So again, it feels like it's, it comes down to power and money, regardless of what science they did. I don't know. Like if yeah. you, mm, I think um, because I did do study philosophy. I say study, I use that very loosely. That <laughs> I study philosophy at uni, and one, this is one of the things, how do you look at things in the past with the same kind of moral perspective we have and in philosophy you say there's a topography of morality that moral ideas change over time mm -hmm. so it's difficult it's difficult to separate the two i think if you're conscious of it and aware of it and you discuss it openly it's a good thing and in fact it's a helpful thing because it reminds you of not, what not to do mm -hmm. and how to behave so i think you know being blinding yourself to it is a bad thing but being conscious of it is really important mm -hmm. and i think your book does a great job of kind of bringing it to the surface a lot of that well, for me, personally, I feel that um, although I have a lot of sympathy with people who would like to see these characters erased out of history, I think what's more productive, perhaps, is to, like you say, educate ourselves about their position, their role in the past, um, what their ideas were, and to understand that um, genius doesn't work in a kind of simplistic way. Someone can do something great and then be a terrible person. And if we can see that and accept that, then I think we can see them in context. And like you said, I think mm. the, the philosophy, the topography way is a really mm. good way of understanding the past. There are things that we think now and do now that our children will think are just abhorrent. Mm. And the same with me and my parents and they and their grandparents. So we can't judge people in the past by our standards. And we have to remember that in the past... They didn't have the benefit of hindsight. Mm. So many of the eugenicists in the early 20th century were Fabians, you know, Marie Stopes, these feminist icons. 
um, literary icons, D.H. Lawrence, Virginia Woolf. What do we do? Chuck all their work in the bin and say, we don't want birth control now because it was associated with eugenics. No, we understand that they lived at a particular point in time. They were convinced of this ideology. We have to understand why. And then understand also that they didn't have the benefit of what knowing what would come afterwards. Mm. And we have that now. We can be wiser about it. But we have to be honest about the past in order to um, not repeat the same mistakes. And yeah. I think what's happening now in politics is we are repeating the same mistakes, as I said before, because we were on the winning side of the war and we think that we are somehow morally free of everything that happened in the mm. past. We haven't... Um, had that process of introspection that in Germany they have had. Mm. They've been really good at it. And Britain just hasn't done it. It's just Mm. airbrushed everything away and painted itself as this kind of perfect nation. And we know that it wasn't. Mm. We know it morally inside us. Mm. We we can feel the rot inside. Mm. And yet we don't confront it and talk about it. We're not educated about it. I find that just bizarre. Because the case study you use in your book, right, was it um, Plank, Planks or... Max Planks. Max Planks, yeah. yeah. I mean, that was a really interesting example where they've actually, you know, come and, and done research onto uh, or looked into the kind of things that they did in the past, didn't they? Mm-hmm. I don't know if you could tell us a bit more about that. So the Max Planck Institute is they're a set of institutes in Germany and they do, you know... A, huge bulk of the research, hire thousands and thousands of researchers, huge number of publications every year. And their um, history um, lies in the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes uh, before the Second World War. And there were scientists within this organization who became um, handmaidens to the Nazi regime, worked for it, devised the ideology, but also worked in concentration camps and did experiments on the bodies of victims from concentration camps. And a lot of this, again, was kind of um, brushed under the carpet after the war because a lot of these people were still alive, we have to remember. But then in the 1990s, when many of them had died, there was this kind of call to reflect, look back through the archives and try to have almost a um, reconciliation with what had Mm. happened. And um, there's this long historical process where they went through everything and they realised, wow, this is what we did. Scientists weren't just bystanders to Nazi Mm. racial hygiene. They were intimately involved in every single stage. We have to confront this. They apologised, which was incredible. Mm. Um, And more institutions need to be able to do that. I just don't know why they're not. I mean, I, I think it's great that UCL now is running an inquiry and investigation into its legacy of eugenics. Um, it's all and part I think of, Cambridge is yeah. doing something as well. But. It's all part of having that discussion, isn't it? Um, yeah. Can you say something more? Um, just, yeah, um, I was just making sure that you guys weren't going to say anything about the RI before. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, do I have to order an Uber? Do I? I think that there's something really interesting in your book talking about that sort of the fluidity of history and how we see history because uh, I think you talked about sort of genetic history and how people have been doing genetic studies on, say, um, you know, British history, or you know, we found things like Cheddar Man. So, mm-hmm. you know, that guy, Cheddar, that guy, um, <laughs> you know, the skeleton that was found and the genetics has now said is sort of blue-eyed, dark skin. Yeah. So a bit like Oz. Um, <laughs> just not beautiful. beautiful. I, if I hey, okay, wait. I spend a lot of time on my hair. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, Cheddar Man has flyaways. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
but there was something really interesting um, you spoke about, which was the idea of um, the rebranding of the Neanderthal. <laughs> uh, just, I found that pretty cool. So I, can you explain a bit more about I that? For, the, for me, this was the perfect example of how science is kind of uh, retrofitted to accommodate race, which is a phrase not of my invention, but of someone I interviewed in the book. So um, for so long, since in the 1800s, um, Neanderthal bones were discovered, and, and we knew that this was a human species that has had now gone extinct, um, and it was painted immediately as kind of, you know, thuggish, knuckle-dragging, um, it's still the word we use to describe kind of stupid men, right? This is in the, that's a dictionary definition, the, the Neanderthal. And then um, over the last couple of decades, it started to emerge. And in fact, in the 1800s, when Neanderthal bones were first discovered, the first thing scientists did was compare them to Aboriginal Australians because Aboriginal Australians were also thought to be down the evolutionary ladder. So if anybody was going to have anything in common, it would be Aboriginal Australians. And at the same time as this was happening, of course, there was the white Australia policy. You know, this, the gentle, horrific, ethnic cleansing of Australia in order to create this white ethnostate. Um, so their humanity was denied... And part of the pretext was for that was that they were um, a lower species like Neanderthals. Now, zoom forward to today, over the last, like I said, couple of decades, it's emerged that Neanderthals are actually, um, that Europeans contain a small percentage of Neanderthal DNA, something like 2%. And um, so now we see... <laughs> A complete kind of rehabilitation of Neanderthal. <laughs> you see these kind of journals and magazine articles, newspaper articles saying, actually, Neanderthals were much smarter than we thought. <laughs> they were sensitive and um, they only died out because of some, you know, sad circumstance and, you know, wasn't it tragic? <laughs> Look how human they were. And again and again, I kept seeing in the literature this how human they were. They were just like us. They were just like us. Just like who? Now they're human because they're European? Suddenly they are accepted into the circle of humanity when Aboriginal Australians, owing to their relationship to Neanderthals, were cast out. Actual human beings were cast out, but Neanderthals are accepted into this circle because of their relationship to Europeans. And that, again, shows just how racialized research can get how we project our ideas about race onto the data that we have. And I have to say, it's scant data. We still know so little about the Neanderthals. We really hardly know anything at all. And in fact, one researcher said to me, the relationship, even though there are all these papers being published saying that Europeans have this and this because of this little percentage of Neanderthal DNA, it's really symbolic more than anything else. But that symbolism has come to mean so much to us. You know, this is the root of European supremacy, it's almost painted as. You know, mm. this is what makes us special. I think what I really like about that is um, massive sort of uptake in those, like, 23 and me, like those consumer genetic testing yeah. ones. And you can get your Neanderthal DNA tested. <laughs> I've, I've done it, <laughs> yeah. and it's not as much. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and um, I don't have any either. Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, but what I liked recently, has anyone seen this? Airbnb, uh, so 23 and me have hooked up with uh, Airbnb, and they're doing. No, I, I, I'm not joking here. Basically, they're using genetic history, so your genetic history from 23 and me hooking up with Airbnb to give you discount like holidays to your country of origin. They can turn, <laughs> go back to where you came from. It was a holiday too. <laughs> I love it. No, I, 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 I love it. It's, I it's the best sales. It's the best sales. One day, one day in future Brexit Britain, Nigel Farage will be handing out those kits. <laughs> Mate, if I, can, if I can get a flight to a craft for less than £400, I'm good. Honestly, I'll be happy. I think it's the great irony of history, isn't it? Because there's another example you use where in the past they would say black slaves were, you know, they were less susceptible to disease, they were stronger, they could take more pain, and then ironically come back to modern medicine and now the thinking is the complete opposite, isn't it? And it's funny how history has a way of changing, flipping things on its head. Yeah, so. it's all stories, yeah. ultimately. But, it's just narratives. But it's also like re constantly just reframing it to fit the narrative that they want to put out there, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like, like speaking of the uh, Neanderthal bones, there's a similar thing that you talk about in the book of Native Americans and how, you know, the bones that were found that were that Native Americans claimed were were theirs, were just being tested and tested, and the science then said, actually, yeah, it's theirs, and it completely rewrote the history of how migration occurred into mm. between those land masses, but scientists still don't accept that, because it doesn't fit their narrative, mm. yeah, and that was astonishing to me, that yeah. here is evidence, scientific evidence, but you still won't accept it. Yeah, I think what it comes down to, and I think this is a conclusion I come to at the end of the book, is... This is about origin stories. Where do we come from and what meaning do we attach to where we come from? And this isn't just about Europeans. It's not just Europeans who have these origin stories. We all have them. And um, Aboriginal Australians have them. And in fact, they, um, there's, a, there's a very controversial hypothesis called the multi-regional hypothesis, which says that different uh, groups of people, different races, originated where they are found. And Aboriginal Australians, there are some who like this theory because it roots them in the, their place. You know, it matches with their origin stories. And many, all of us have origin stories. In India, um, Hindu nationalists now um, are painting this uh, narrative of Hindus having an attachment to the place that goes back millions of years, that they didn't migrate out of Africa like everybody did but that they evolved right there and they were always there and that is their attachment to the land. In China, this is quite widely taught that actually the Chinese people did not um, also migrate out of Africa, which we know we, they did, like everybody, because of DNA evidence, but that they evolved within China from an earlier form of Homo erectus. So these are stories that exist everywhere and they all serve the same purpose, which is a nationalist narrative, something that roots a people to a place. This is what they did in Nazi Germany. Um, they constructed the idea of a Germanic race, and if they could find evidence, archaeological evidence of that Germanic race in other parts of Europe, they could then go out and legitimately conquer those areas mm. because they had a connection to that place, because the Germanic people lived there. So we have to understand this for what it is, which yeah. is a kind of system of politics, a system of um, power, it always comes down to power, mm. that 
abuses this idea of indigeneity and origin, constructs narratives around them, stories, myths which already exist, mixes them all together and then packages them, gives it to us as a story that we can then buy into and claim for ourselves. And we like these stories. Mm -hmm. We love them because it gives us a sense of you know, pride and nationalism and place. And, and as humans, we like to have things like that. But they're empty, ultimately. It's an excellent point, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know people want to clap, but I'm just super depressed. <laughs> um, and I think we're coming up to Q&A. Yeah. So that feels like a good time. Yeah, it feels like a good time. Yeah, like a really good time. <laughs> so uh, we've actually got some roving mics. We also have, like, a little... It's like, there. Oh, God, yeah. So we've got this, this box. It's a cube box thing. Um, and we're really hoping that, like, this will bring some levity to this <laughs> um, and that it would be very, very difficult for people to shout angrily into what is a cube. Um, so if you have a question, I'm going to try my hardest at throwing it at you. Um, unlike my PE teacher who said in year seven that I've got good muscles for throwing and sprinting, <laughs> be afraid, be very afraid. So let's try, oh my God, please, can we get a roving mic? Pretty pleased. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got. <laughs> I should pass. Okay. All right, we've got this. All right, you. All right, let's do this. Yes. Hello. Hold on there. We're Hello. good. Hello. Say your name. Can you? Hi. Um, my name's Anu. Thank Hi. you so much for today. It was really, really great. Um, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. Sorry, I haven't read it already, Angela. But um, yeah, so, <laughs> so, um, so talking about the sort of moving forward. From, so we've talked about like the the implications of racism in science. So moving forward to what you construct as scientific knowledge and technology, what can be done to hold the scientific community not accountable but educate them? in order to sort of make sure that the products of scientific research aren't intrinsically racist. So, for instance, clinical trials, there's a big discussion about them being dominated by um, cis hair white men. Mm. Shock. Um, so, so what do you think is a productive way to ensure that scientific products and technologies aren't affected by this systemic racism? Um, I've, I'm so torn because I've, I've read in the literature at the moment that there are concerns within the genetic community that they're drawing only from a limited number of people, like you say, generally white European, and w even within that, a subset of people, and that is problematic. But we have to accept that actually we have so much in common as a species that... You know, the problem there is not that these people are completely unrepresentative of the entire human race. We do have enough in common. For example, one geneticist told me that if the entire population of the world was wiped out, save just Peru, um, something like 80 or 90% of genetic diversity would be retained. That's how similar we are. So the point is not that we include everybody in these trials because we're so different, but because at the very, very margins, which is where we look for human difference, there may be slight differences and a pattern to those differences. And we have to keep reaffirming that because this idea that somehow we are so fundamentally different, which I hear in medicine all the time, is 
bit shocking, actually, because it runs completely counter to the statement that has been made for 70 years that race is a social construct. If it's a social construct, then how can doctors say things like, you know, South Asians are more likely to have diabetes and cystic fibrosis is a black disease? I've also heard schizophrenia is a black, black disease. Well, let's remember, schizophrenia... There, there are more diagnoses in the UK and in the US among uh, black patients, but um, this is a complex illness, and its diagnosis is not simple in itself, so there is some bias there. There's also um, the what causes, what triggers schizophrenia in someone, and we know that there are lots of different social factors, including um, kind of... Uh, violence and discrimination and all these things affect it. But let's just think back to the 1920s. And I'll give you the example of um, Otmar van uh, Verschua, who was a Nazi race scientist. He was studying um, people being held in uh, concentration camps. And he noticed that there was a high prevalence of schizophrenia amongst Jewish people. And he wrote up in a paper... um, schizophrenia must be a racialized disease then. It's a Jewish disease. So just think, at that point in that place, it was a Jewish disease and now it's a black disease. We have to be so careful about racializing illness and using race as a proxy when in fact we're using it as a proxy um, for lifestyle sometimes, culture, um, Uh, Sometimes discrimination. We don't know the effects of discrimination on a body. And certainly in the US, we know, black Americans die of almost everything, including infant mortality, at higher rates than white Americans. Life expectancy of a black American is lower than a white American. Now, is that genetic? Is it possible that a whole group of people are so genetically disadvantaged? And let's remember, within that group of people, black Americans, because of slavery, are not all of 100% African ancestry. Most black Americans are mixed ancestry. So we're saying this entire group of people who are not even of the same ancestry are so genetically disadvantaged that they would die at higher rates than white Americans. And yet, that is the implication of literature at the moment. So... While it's important to include everyone in clinical trials, we also need to be cautious about the language and the reasons that we do it. Uh, another question. Questioni, questioni. Uh, let's go with... Wait, wait, I always say about this side. You can't... <laughs> Go for it, go for it, let's do this. You know the rules of this. Question box. Hi, uh, my name is Christina. Um, I haven't read your book, but I'm I'm really fascinated by the perspective that you shared. Um, You spoke about, um, with uh, the science, that the, the narrative sort of came first, and then they searched for the evidence to support to try and support that and that's been kind of a, a foundation for quite a lot of for for science is there what would be the alternative that's my question um, i think it's difficult because i think some people would like to be able to say and i have heard some geneticists say this we don't need to talk about race race doesn't exist because it's not biological so why are we pressing on with it why does society have this problem 
Um, race is a social problem. It's a political problem. It's real because we have made it real through politics. And it is as visceral in our bodies as a result as anything else because it exists in society. So we can't detach it from biology because it has it effect, its effects on our body and um, in the way that we relate to each other. So we can't throw race out the window. Um, but I would say that, and this is an idea I got from Kwame Anthony Appiah, whose brilliant book, The Lies That Bind, I really recommend, came out at the end of last year. And he is um, half Ghanaian, half English. And when it, whenever he travels around the world, people find it hard to place him. And rather than kind of being frustrated with that and fed up, he accepts it as this is how it is. This is how race works. And we should accept that biological race we know isn't real. Whatever mask or cloak that people project onto us as our <laughs> race is, um, should be worn lightly. So while we need to assert our identity in order to fight for our rights, and we do need to do that, we can't be <laughs> ignorant or colorblind. Yeah. We need to, as women, for instance, assert our rights as women, as black people, as Asian people, assert our rights. Um, we can't then make the mistake of falling into the trap of um, believing that there's something more to it, because that is what the oppressors did. They said, we are different, and so we will treat you differently. If we then buy into this idea that we are naturally different, then we're doing exactly the same thing. We have to be able to move beyond that at some point and, and see it as a tool of oppression, which now we have to try and subvert and um, work back to a position of equality and then be willing to shed the labels afterwards, however hard that might be. And it may never happen. I mean, I'm fairly sure we will die in a climate change catastrophe. <laughs> we can work towards that. Thank you. Pass it back to the... Yeah, yeah, right there. You can do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, my name's Kirsty. Thank you so much for the discussion. Thank you, all of the panellists. And I really appreciate, Angela, that you have all these conversations with these really quite... Uh, unpleasant people to report to us so that it's we don't have to do it. You've done really well for the last hour. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask who was the most, and you can't say the four panellists, uh, who was the most sort of hopeful or inspiring sort of positive anti-racist person that you interviewed in writing the book um there are so many there are so many wonderful race scholars out there doing such brilliant work um and i hope that i've showcased their work accurately in the book there's people like dorothy roberts who has looked at race in medicine in the u.s i'd say a lot of them are in the u.s um there's jennifer rath who looks at genetics and race um it's hard i don't know if i can pick out one there are so many great people. A lot of them happen to be women, interestingly. Um, but, I, you know, go through the book. The references are all there. Read their work. That's what I would really love, that you go out and read their work and explore. To be sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think the people in front of you are <laughs> Right. <laughs> <laughs> So 
So, yeah, thank you for a brilliant and hilarious and beautiful conversation. Um, I guess one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is the history of eugenics in relation to, I guess, we often separate race out and think about race uh, in relation to skin colour. But I guess in this history of eugenics, there's a dimension to which um, disability or um, queerness or sexual variation and also class are all considered degeneracies in terms of uh, like breeding stock of uh, the species mm. of humanity. Mm. I wondered if you'd like touched on those other dimensions of race that are kind mm. of maybe uh, rooted in, in eugenics and, and how you, if you did, if, how you analyse that. It's interesting because eugenics took a, takes a different flavour depending on the country. Mm -hmm. So in Germany, it was really about race. Mm. Um, in this country, it was really about class, mm. interestingly. So if you look at um, those early eugenicists and how they phrased the targets of their problem. There were, there were racial elements to it, especially later on. But a lot of it was about, you know, this group of people, the underclass, you know, the residuum, mm -hmm. they described them as, um, that were just having too many babies. We have to control them. Mm -hmm. um, they, you know, there's no hope for them. They will just keep replicating that. What's interesting is that you see, even now, within... The, modern day politics, that same kind of rhetoric, mm. this idea of the underclass is still there. Mm. You know, people complaining. There are even policies to stop women from having too many kids. Mm. You know, the benefits stop, don't they, after a certain number of children. That is a eugenic policy. Mm. I think just in the last few weeks something came out about um, drug addicts needing to be on contraception in order, yeah. in order to continue on a support program, yeah. which is eugenics. Mm. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's difficult because we know that the roots of birth control were in this movement as well. Marie Stokes is quite racist as well, as well as classist. We need our birth control. I value my birth control. As women, you know, this is a valuable thing for us. I don't want it to be tainted by this horrible history. But we can value this birth control, abortion. I mean, there was a... I was just told by my American publishers that in the US um, there was some senator or politician who made the claim that abort, uh, birth control shouldn't be available because it was associated with eugenics, which is such a dangerous and ridiculous argument to be making. Something can be useful but still have its roots in something negative, which is the case for, for many things, actually, <laughs> had their roots in something terrible. Um, but it's interesting that whatever the politics of the place is, that's how the technology gets tailored to it, mm. right? Eugenic, and eugenics definitely did that. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to do this top left, my left, your right, right there. That, yeah, yeah. Okay. Everyone says that. <laughs> <laughs> I basically forgot my question because of stress now. Stop. <laughs> it's easy, it's easy. Start with your name. Okay. Go from there. All right. <laughs> um, I'm Maimana. Um, hi, nice to, to meet you all. Um, <laughs> I've been thinking of a question since, um, Anjali, you, you said this point, which I agree with a lot of your reasoning, and then I was trying to work out why this particular conclusion kind of struck me, which is um, the point where you said that because race is a social construct, um, you went through a few extra steps, which I can't remember right now, but the main point which kind of struck me was that you would need to say that you were fully British in, in order to um, kind of reconcile this long history of, of race and how it's been in, intertwined with science. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason I feel like I disagree with that is because I think in the same way that gender has, we've had to fight a long history as women um, 
for rights, I feel like that ignores our social history to then say um, we have to fully integrate or assimilate into into Britishness in order to um, mm -hmm. overcome kind of the 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 wrong association or into the kind of entanglement that science has with race. So I just wanted to probe you a bit further with that. And, and my conclusion then would be to separate race from a biological con um, sort of history, which is what you've been saying, but still to, to keep that social um, history. And also, I, don't, I just feel like it, in terms of oppression, that it's been a tactic often to, to remove kind of ancestry um, in terms of... <laughs> People who were slaves just lost their, their last names yes, and they lost yeah. their ancestry and that was a powerful tactic of oppression. So I, I feel like it would be a, a bit of a, a power-blind move to, to ignore that um, and to then have to fully integrate into the place that we currently are. Okay, long. Yeah, that was a solid 30-mark like, answer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> I mean, I would say, I'm not saying um, that, I, and I know everyone is different. My husband doesn't agree with me on this. What I'm saying is not that I want to assimilate and become British. I want Britishness to encompass me as I am, an Indian heritage person, and still be fully British, okay. to not be hyphenated. But I want to be able... I want my son... So I'll just give you an anecdote here. Um, uh, a few years ago, I was at the Women of the World Festival. My son is now five. He was about two or three then. And there was a woman selling flags. And she was kind of celebrating people's heritages. You know, you pick the flag of where you're from. And my son picked the Union Jack. And she looked at him and said, are you sure that's your flag? What is your actual flag? And I don't want, I don't want that to be the case for him. I want him to be able to pick up the Union Jack and say, this is me fully. I don't want it to just belong to white British people. I want it to belong to everybody. And for Britishness to not just be whatever, you know, certain stereotypes or values we have placed around it, but to encompass all of our values as British people. I am equally British, and my values are also, must then also be British values, I'm guessing. Let's bring let's bring it down. We can do this. Right, come on, we got this. We got this. I'm gonna start then you move on. Jesus wept. Um, so my question is, uh, do you think your book will persuade Nigel Farage to not be racist? <laughs> well, funny. <laughs> Look who we've got outside. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that Nigel Farage is racist. I don't know whether he is or he isn't. But... Um, <laughs> But um, I feel that, I, I mean, I haven't written this book in order to convince hardened racists because hardened racists don't believe what they believe because they have faithfully looked through the science and then decided that we are different and that's why we should be treated differently. They had, they were born, you know, they developed that idea long before they started looking through the science and trying to justify their prejudices. So, and they will reach for anything. They keep reaching. I end the book by saying, keep reaching, keep reaching, keep reaching. One day there'll be nothing left. 
because mm. they always go to the next thing. Once it was skull shape or you know brain size, and now it's genetics. You know, once it was skin color, it's always something new. It's the same with sexism. You know, you find the same kind of tortured logic. Now we know that women have the same IQ, but maybe their preferences, innate preferences, are different, and that's why they choose to do different things. You know, it's, the boundaries keep shifting, and they will always keep doing that. So I feel that it's almost worthless trying to argue with hardened racists. Well, I've written this book for everyone, but but particularly for those people who are on the fence, who feel that. Maybe these racial stereotypes are true. I don't know. You know, maybe it's real. Maybe there is some biological basis to race. I want them to read it and hopefully become less susceptible to those people who want to be able to manipulate them for political reasons. And there are those people out there who want to be able to take those prejudices, make them bigger, harden them, and then mobilize them. That is already happening. Um, so I hope. It's probably an ambitious thing to hope, but I hope some of them read it. So, um, got time for sort of one more question. Cypher uh, Islam, uh, Angela, I think first of all, I'd like to congratulate you on Inferior. I mean, I think it's been fantastic, and I'm so pleased with the success of Inferior. My question was... Oh, thank yeah. God. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the question relates to something you said really early on about hierarchy, and I think it comes through the whole discussion about hierarchy in society and obviously within science. From doing the research in your book, do you find the hierarchies are shifting within science communities or are they still fairly entrenched? So you mean establishment hierarchies yeah. as they exist now? Um, well, I think... I want an optimistic answer. <laughs> I think to some extent um, the hierarchies that we see in science reflect the historic prejudices within the sciences so we know that women are underrepresented because of the historic exclusion of women from the sciences and the same goes um, for minorities across the board um, but that is getting redressed you know Venki Ramakrishnan is now heading the Royal Society there are things happening and I think we can be hopeful that if we can encourage enough people to enter the sciences in larger numbers and also make the sciences a safe place for them. So, you know, the extent of sexual harassment, I'm just writing about this at the moment, the extent of sexual harassment in the sciences is on an epidemic scale. You know, it's so, so rampant. In fact, when Inferior came out, and I've given so many talks across the country, there can't be a single one where a woman hasn't come up to me afterwards in tears or with her own story. Um, and I get emails as well. And I know that many w women who work on sexual harassment hear these stories and get dozens of them all the time. We have to make science better for people, less racist, less sexist, so that they want to stay and then they can move up more easily. So we've come to the end of the event. This is generally the point where people on the podcast make a sad noise. So if all of you could go, oh. Aww. So um, <laughs> that's so much better than you guys. <laughs> so Hannah, also, how you feel like you've learned something new? Keep it snappy, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I learned a lot of shit. There we go. <laughs> 
and I'm hoping all of you feel like you've learned something new. You've got fire in your belly, yeah? <laughs> Alright, so I want you to keep the fire in the belly. Uh, I need half of you to go to the British Museum. <laughs> to the Natural History Museum, alright? Uh, what I really want you to do in the spirit of Airbnb and 23andMe is go to your ethnic heritage bit, repatriate it, let's go! Alright? Um, Can I just say, I'm oh, wearing um, Rosetta Stone earrings, though. So these are from the British Museum, and they're little Rosetta Stones. And if you read the prologue to the book, you'll understand. Oh. <laughs> Shrink them down. Put them in the drawer. <laughs> so, I would, hopefully, I want you to join me in giving a massive round of applause to your panellists. You've seen Sahel Patel, Oz Ismail, Hannah Ayub, and Angela Saini. I've been Alex Lafferty. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.